This podcast is brought to you in part by GEICO, proud sponsor of National Geographic. GEICO, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Here's a quick trivia question for you. What is the third law of Hammurabi's code, the Ten Commandments, and U.S. Code Title 18, Section 1001 all have in common? They all prohibit lying. And with good reason. Because it turns out as humans, we lie all the time. There's lies that are told to avoid punishment, lies that are intended to influence large numbers of people, to gain an unjust reward, to save face, uh, or to avoid embarrassment, to make somebody else feel better. Those are all different types of lying. Yudigit Bhattacharjee is a contributing writer here at National Geographic. He has a lot to say about lies, but what really caught my attention was how early in life we start to tell them. Children will invariably lie, and they're actually going to practice the art of lying from the age of two or three, and they're just going to keep getting better. Almost every law code in the world prohibits lying, but we don't normally think of two-year-olds as immoral deviants. So should we? Yudichit says, no, not at all. In fact, we should probably be glad that our kids are lying. I'm Vaughn Wallace. You're listening to Overheard at National Geographic. This week, the evolution of a liar. How kids learn to lie and what that can teach us about what's going on inside those little brains. GEICO and National Geographic are working together to make your life a lot easier. Get a quote with GEICO, mention your Nat Geo affiliation, and you could get a special discount on GEICO's already low rates. Visit geico.com slash natgeo to see how much you could save. That's geico.com slash natgeo. Great rates, great service, and a whole lot more. geico.com slash natgeo. Dr. Kang Lee is a professor of child psychology at the University of Toronto. And as the preeminent expert on childhood lies, he spent the past two decades getting more than 5,000 children to lie to him. I've heard all sorts of lies, and uh, some of them are very, very well-crafted, and some of them are poorly crafted, of course. Lee's research started when he noticed a strange quirk in child psychology, a quirk that might raise the ears of anybody who's ever been a parent. Up until the 1980s, psychologists believed that children under seven were intellectually unable to lie. That was very surprising to us growing up as a child. I remember the earliest lives vividly. Yet, you know, you look at the scientific literature or legal literature and people say, oh, kids don't lie. Psychologists expected kids to maybe misremember facts or even say untrue things because they didn't understand what they were actually saying. But intentional lying? Psychologists thought that that was just too sophisticated for a child's simple little mind. This might have been partly because there wasn't much research to start with. Only a handful of scientists had ever written about childhood lies, including one familiar name. There was a report by Darwin, Charles Darwin himself. Really? Yeah, he wrote a report about his observation of his first son, Dodie, who one day came out to the kitchen with sugar all over his face. And um, Darwin asked him, what's going on, you know? So his eyes brightened with this guilt, according to Darwin. So he, he said, what did you do? He said, nothing. And uh, Darwin was very concerned because he thought lying at such a young age could be a bad indicator. Wow. So from Darwin, we have the origin of species and 
perhaps the origin of lying. Yes, indeed, yeah. In this brief report about his son, Darwin voiced a concern that lots of parents share, that his lying kid would grow up to become an immoral adult. No, it's not true at all. Whether or not the child knows the right or wrong would have nothing to do with whether or not a child is lying at a young age. It's a good thing that early lies don't warn of some deep character flaw, because lots of my coworkers were pretty excellent at telling lies as kids. So being the wonderful coworker that I am, I recorded a few of their stories and brought them to Dr. Lee for analysis. You know, for science. We're going to keep the liars anonymous for their own protection. Lee says the way we learn to lie follows a predictable pattern. He can tell a lot about a kid's development just by analyzing the kind of lies they tell. Phase one, the clumsy cover-up. I don't know why, but I developed an obsession with eating crayons. My mom, of course, didn't want me to do that. So she was constantly telling me to stop eating the crayons. And I didn't want to, so (laughs) I would sneak off into this armoire that we have where we keep all of our board games. And I would close the door as best I could. And I would just sit there in the dark and chew my crayons. And I thought I was really getting away with it, but somehow my mom always knew. And come to find out, it was because the contents of my diaper would always be all the colors of the rainbow. What are some of the first things you notice about this lie that she told? So this is so typical uh, about the children's first lies. It's about you have done something you're not supposed to do, and then you have to cover that up. Lee knows this kind of cover-up is typical because he's built an experiment to test a very similar scenario. He's become an expert in getting kids to break the rules and then lie about it. So we would bring uh, kids to our labs, and then we say, oh, let's play a game. It's a guessing game. So the child faces a wall and the researcher takes out a toy. And then the researcher plays a sound that correlates to what that toy is. So if it's a toy cat, then he might play a meowing sound. Or if it's a fire truck, then he'll make a truck noise. But then Lee starts to shake things up. And then we take out another toy. Let's say it's Barney, the dinosaur. And then we play the music. But the music has nothing to do with Barney. Hmm. So there's no way the child is able to correctly guess its identity. Mm -hmm. Then we say, oh, I'm sorry, I have this important phone call to make. When I'm gone, do not peek at the toy. Hmm. And then we leave the room. When we come back, we ask them, when I was gone, did you peek? Uh So then the child has to make a decision. Should I lie or should I tell the truth? I'd like to pause here to point out that Dr. Lee wants to avoid encouraging or actually teaching the kids to lie in his experiments. Studies like these keep university ethics boards up at night. Because like an FBI sting operation, he needs to create the perfect combination of motive and opportunity to catch the liars in action. Once all the pieces are in place, Lee listens intently to hear if the kids will lie and how convincingly. The majority of kids would say, no, I did not peek. Then we would ask them, what do you think it is? So some of the kids would say, I know what it is, it's Barney. And then we say, how do you know? I just know, right? So not very well-crafted lie. Lying is a good meter stick for development for a simple reason. It's hard, really hard. 
Think about the mental gymnastics required to know the truth, suppress that truth, and invent an alternate reality at the same time. The really young kids in Lee's lab, the two and three-year-olds, they're not very good at this. But around seven years old, kids make the next leap in development, mind reading. Before they actually tell the lie, they also have to think about you. Like to what extent you know about what actually happened when you went away, which means I have to read your mind as well. Mind reading is tough, so it makes sense that a kid's first cover story might be a little clumsy. I asked, what do you think the toy is? She said, mm, I, I, don't, I don't quite know. So give me a second. So she put her hand underneath the cloth, and then she says, it feels purple. So I think it's Barney. <laughs> it feels purple. <laughs> yeah. As kids get older, their lies start to get a little bit more credible. Some other kids would say, mm, you know, the music sounds familiar. You know, I heard it one time in the show, sure. so I think it's Barney. So something like that. Around the same time they're learning to read minds, kids begin to develop another lying superpower, emotional intelligence. Here's lying coworker number two. I had just acquired a taste for soda, and my parents were really excited about this because I was a very picky eater when I was younger. And so as a reward, my mom went out and bought some cherry 7-Up. And she gave me a can and said, this is for you, you know, good for you for trying new foods. And I took a sip of the Cherry 7-Up, and I hated it. It was disgusting. So I had this plan, and I took the can of Cherry 7-Up into the bathroom, and I poured it down the sink. And my mom came back about five minutes after she'd given me the can and said, how are you enjoying your special treat? And I said, oh, it was so good, I finished it. And I think my mom knew that, like, a seven-year-old wasn't going to finish a can of soda in, like, five minutes. And I remember being punished for lying because my mom said, lying is a terrible thing. You never, ever, ever lie. And this was just so devastating to me because I remember thinking that I had lied because I didn't want to hurt her feelings because she had done this thing for me that I thought was really nice. Yeah, before she said seven, I just knew it is about six and seven years of age. And why is that? This is the time that most of the kids would start spontaneously tell white lies. As with his other experiment, Lee has figured out the perfect formula to study how kids tell white lies. We tell them they're going to get a big gift to take home. Then the second person comes in and they're pretending does not know which gift the child has picked out. And it would gave the child a wrapped bar of soap. So when the child opens up the wrapper and sees the, the bar of soap, then we say, how do you like the gift I gave to you? This entire setup has been designed to bring the child to this critical moment where they're stuck with a lose-lose proposition. Should they be rude or should they tell a lie? It's about 50% of kids will be very blunt, say, I don't like it, it's a bar of soap. The other 50% of kids will say, um, I love it. And actually one of the kids said, oh, a bar of soap. We just ran out of bar of soap at home, so it's just exactly something we need. And we asked the parents whether that's true. She said, no, that's not true. We tell white lies to be polite. Dinner was great. I love your haircut. I am totally looking forward to that Friday meeting at 4 p.m. Lee's point is that we have to divorce our thinking from all lies are bad, because they're not. 
Simply put, you cannot tell the truth all the time. If you tell the truth all the time to people, including your family members, your spouse, your colleagues, you're not going to survive in this society. Nobody's going to like you. You're going to be a very, very lonely person. The well-placed lie is an important social skill. It might be a little embarrassing to have a stranger catch your child in a lie, but is that worse than refusing a gift or telling someone they look horrible? In the same way that children learn please and thank you, they learn what kind of lies are okay by carefully watching their parents. The best evidence that these lies are taught is that these kind of lies aren't the same for every society. Yes, indeed. There are actually cross-cultural differences um, in terms of what kind of lies we tell. For example, Lee's found that children in cultures that value modesty will tell lies that play down their achievements. And in cultures that value cooperation, kids will lie to protect their classmates. Kids actually watch how parents do things at home. And then the child just watching, say, hey, you know, she just said they're not supposed to lie, but now she's lying. So kids are very sensitive to this and say, oh, maybe this is the time you, you could lie. So catching your kid in a lie is no big deal. But if you're truly concerned about getting your kid to tell the truth, Lee says that the easiest intervention is the most straightforward. You just ask them to promise to tell the truth. What I say is, if you tell the truth, I'm not going to punish you then my child is going to be honest. As they head into adolescence, kids begin to tell fewer lies. They're not lying about whether they went to the bathroom before bed or brushed their teeth in the morning or even whether they finished the grilled cheese sandwich that you can clearly see is being eaten by the dog. Instead, teenagers are learning which lies they can get away with. And their cover-up stories are a bit more sophisticated than they were when they were eight. Eventually, teenagers will catch up to us adults and go on to tell a perfectly reasonable average of one to two lies per day, just like the rest of us. So I saw that you're a parent yourself. Has your research changed your parenting style at all? Yes, indeed. I have a son, and uh, he told his first lie in my lab at exactly three years of age. Does he try to lie to you at all? Well, you know, he doesn't lie very often, but if he lies, I actually cannot tell, to be honest with you. <laughs> he knows, though, that you're watching his developmental signs and are probably attuned to any kind of wool he's trying to pull over your eyes. Yes, exactly. And then he, he would try to watch, you know, what signs I'm looking for, and then he tried to hide them. <laughs> sure. So it's like a espionage and counter-espionage. Got that? Even Kang Lee the world's premier scholar of childhood lies, a doctor who's observed 5,000 different children lying to his face, can't even tell when his own son is lying. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's really like arms race between you and your child, you know. But but overall, you actually are on the losing side. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you'll want to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And while you're hitting that subscribe button, we'd love it if you'd write us a review, even if it's a white lie. We're going to be coming out with another episode next week, but if you want something to tide you over in the meantime, check out our show notes. We've got lots of links there with additional information. Overheard at National Geographic is produced by Brian Gutierrez, Kristen Clark, Emily Oxenschlager, Robin Miniter, and Jacob Pinter. Our editor is Casey Miner. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. 
Hansdale Sue composed our theme music and engineered our episodes with additional help from Nick Anderson, Jerry Busher, and Jay Olszewski. Special thanks to Pineapple Street Media. This podcast is a production of National Geographic Partners. Susan Goldberg is our editorial director. I'm Vaughn Wallace. See you next week. GEICO and National Geographic are working together to make your life a lot easier. Get a quote with GEICO, mention your Nat Geo affiliation, and you could get a special discount on GEICO's already low rates. Visit geico.com slash natgeo to see how much you could save. That's geico.com slash natgeo. Great rates, great service, and a whole lot more. geico.com slash natgeo.